Well, this week we begin Parshas Mishpatim, <coughs> as we uh, are wont to say, with Mishpatim the Torah gets down to uh, business, certainly halachic business, and there are a couple of uh, questions which are <coughs> quite, quite basic in nature that I think are very revealing and illuminating in terms of what we would call uh, for want of a better expression, the, the legal philosophy of the Torah. And as we know, Mishpatim, or much of Mishpatim, are, take the form of the Bezdin enforcing laws. There could be penalties, there could be punishments, there could be uh, overseeing things. <coughs> and the question is, what is the ultimate goal of this system. And the reason why I think it's uh, such an important question to ask is because it's seemingly a very easy question to answer. As if to say, uh, without inf- law enforcement, so society could become a tovavohu. <coughs> As the Mishnah tells us in Pirkei Avos, to pray for the welfare of the country, el male were it not for their uh, people's fear of them, ish esrei'ehu chaim bela'o, people would swallow each other alive. So that is obviously a very basic answer to the question as to why one needs enforcement. And indeed, in locations currently where things are not being enforced, uh, people are uh, certainly experiencing uh, the difference between them. Having said all of that, there is quite a different answer, which comes from the Sefer HaChinuch. <coughs> it's a Sefer HaChinuch in Parshat Shoftim, which actually is where the Torah formally commands to set up a Bezdin. It's very interesting just in terms of the mitzvah construction of the Psukim. Parshas Mishpatim is where we're introduced to the Mishpatim, but the Sanhedrin, or the Bezdin, are described as something that exists already. And therefore, if we read Parshas Mishpatim, we don't yet know that there is a mitzvah per se to have a Sanhedrin. Perhaps that's what we would call a Heksher mitzvah. One needs to, to do the Mishpatim. To that end, one needs a Sanhedrin. But the actual setting up of a Sanhedrin is not spoken about as a mitzvah in all of Parshas Mishpatim until you get to Chumash Devarim where Parsha Shoftim begins with the words, Shoftim v'shoftim, titin nechal b'chol she'arecha. That's where <coughs> we have the Pasuk, which actually has a mitzvah of setting up the Sanhedrin. As we know, it is the way of the Sefer HaChinuch to, uh, as he outlines the mitzvahs, to give a brief description of the mitzvah, the source of the mitzvah in the Torah, and then to be involved in what he calls Shoresh HaMitzvah, or literally the, the root of the mitzvah, and more practically what we would call tamiha mitzvahs, the reason behind the mitzvah, or of the reasons. And here, says the Sefer HaChinuch, and it's in Mitzvah Taf Tzadik Alek, 4, 491, Shorosh mitzvah, <coughs> the mitzvah of setting up a Sanhedrin. What's it all about? She'im hadavar hazeh, through this institution called the Sanhedrin and the Bezdin, 
Naamid Dosenu, we will establish our Das, which is loosely translated as religion, but our, our, our religious law. Through this, the fear of the authorities will be on the masses. Okay, so far that sounds more or less straightforward. The masses need to, to be um, enforced. But then the Sefer HaChinuch continues. But once people are schooled, once people are trained, once people are accustomed to act in a law-abiding way, albeit initially due to fear, fear of the authorities, fear of penalties, fear of punishments, but once that happens, they will teach their nature in order to do the right thing, or to do the right thing, to act justly out of love. By recognizing the, the way of truth. As the Chachamim says, says Sefer HaChinuch, Rov HaHergel, Humasha Achar HaTeva. Abundant uh, custom and habituation will then follow nature. What we would call habit is second nature. In other words, <coughs> what's most significant about these few lines of the Sefer HaChinuch is that they begin with what we would say is the straightforward reason for needing a Sanhedrin. You have to enforce the law, and, some, and, and someone has to do it, and people need to be aware that their, their actions have consequences, and, and there could be penalties in order to have a just society. <coughs> but the Sefer HaChinuch says the goal, ultimately, is that people should act in a just way. Or to put it slightly differently, because here I think is really the, the, the point of the Sefer HaChinuch. We normally look upon the beneficiary of having a legal system as the would-be victims. As if to say, to save would-be victims from being perpetrated against. What protects them? What protects the victim? Law and order. But the Sefer HaChinuch says that there's more than that. The goal of law and order is not just, doesn't stop at protecting victims from being perpetrated against. It comes to protect would-be perpetrators from becoming as such. They're also the focus of Mishpatim. It's not just that we're saying there will always be criminals, and that's a fact of life. Mishpatim is to, is to save people from them. But rather, it's to save people from becoming criminals. The Torah has a portion of its care for, for those who otherwise would, would commit the crimes. They're also in the goal. That The program is also for them. That, I think, is the, the deeper point that the Sefer HaChinuch is coming uh, to bring out. And what's interesting is, we see uh, this idea echoed, actually, in a Rashi in our Parsha. There is a specific niche within the laws of theft. As we know, generally speaking, if a person steals, so then he pays back double, what's called Tashlumei Kefal. But there is one situation where he could actually pay back more than double. It's what's known as tashlume dalad vehe, pay back fourfold and fivefold. And that is to be found in our parsha in Perak Kafbeis, Pasuk 
Lamed Zion. So let's see the Pasuk, and then, then there's a fascinating Rashi. One second. Here it comes. Sorry, Perik Kaf Aleph Pasuk Lamed Zayin. Okay, Kaf Aleph Lamed Zayin. The Pasuk reads, Ki yignov ish shor If a person should uh, steal an ox or a sheep, utevacho umecharo, and uh, slaughter it or sell it on, chamisha bakar, so there's more than kefal. There's fivefold yishalem tachasa, sure, fivefold for the Ox, the arbatzon tachasase, and fourfold for the sheep. And this then, as we as we mentioned, colloquially becomes known as tashlumi arba vechamisha, arba vechamisha, the fourfold and the fivefold. Fourfold for the sheep, fivefold for the ox. If he then takes the added measure of not only stealing it but also shechting it or or selling it on. And there's many many details, and they're discussed in detail in the uh, in seventh parak of Babakama. But Rashi is, is uh, interested in the difference, the discrepancy. Why is it that uh, you pay fourfold for a sheep and fivefold for an ox? I mean, is it, is it because an ox is bigger than a sheep? I mean, is it a fifth bigger? And Rashi cites, <coughs> and this is actually from the Mishnah in, in Babakama there, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Chamisha bakar yishalei. You should pay fivefold for the ox. Amar Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Chas hamokum al kvodim shabrios. Hashem has pity. Is shows concern for kavod abrios. Who's the brios? What's happening here? Shor sheholech beraglov. How does one steal an ox? There's only one way to steal an ox, and that is to lead it out. I mean, there's, you take it by the reins and lead it out. And that's quite a mechubedika way for a person to be walking. So, shor sheholech baraglov, the ox, it walks. So, velonis baza bohaganov lenoso akseifo. This ganov did not undergo any degradation in, in stealing the ox. Because he was able to walk out like a mensch. Again, like a criminal mensch. But like a mensch. Whereas, so there, Mishalemhe, there you pay the full five. But Seh, what about a sheep? Think about this Ganav. Think about this poor Ganav. Masheniso Akseifo. How do you steal a sheep? You have to carry it on your, on your shoulders. Hol Mishalem Dalad. You paid fourfold. Hol Benisbazabo. Because he was degraded in his act of theft. I think when we hear this Rashi quoting a Ryochan ben Zakkai, you kind of feel like you've heard everything. In other words, we're saying, you know, your heart goes out to this Ganav because when he stole the sheep, it was a bizoyon for him. And, and uh, so, well, you know, what can we do for him? So I think the answer is very simple. Don't be a Ganav and don't be mispaze and, and act like a normal person, and a law-abiding member of society, and then you won't, you won't have these issues. And yet, we see that the Torah doesn't say that. It seems like the, the actual amount is fivefold. 
This guy gets a discount. He gets a bizarre discount. Because the terrorist takes his feelings into account. Now, we should not misunderstand. <coughs> we, we're not saying, well, you know, one should, one should have compassion for him and therefore he shouldn't have to pay for his actions. He does pay. He pays fourfold. Being considerate of someone doesn't mean giving them a complete clearance for any consequences for the things they do. That's not called consideration at all. That is actually the ultimate denigration of a person, to basically absolve them of all consequences for what they do. Because you're basically saying nothing they do really makes a difference, and neither do them. The Torah says, if you did something wrong, you are a person. You're answerable for it. But at the same time, you had a bizoyan, the Torah takes note of it. And why? Because, as we said, <coughs> the goal of the mishpatim is not just to protect the victim, it's to protect the perpetrators, either from doing it or from doing it again. And who knows? If one of the reasons why this ganav, and it's, not, it's, it's illegal to steal, it's a criminal offense to steal, but who knows, <coughs> maybe no one ever showed him consideration. It could be that the Torah, in punishing him, shows him more consideration than many of his so-called friends when, when they're stealing together with him. Because they basically confirm him as being capable of no better and of, and of no consideration. Whereas the Torah says, number one, you're answerable for what you did. Number two, if it was to be Zion, it makes a difference. That's also part of the message. Maybe the next time he'll, he'll realize that the Torah cares about him. And this actually segues into a very uh, fascinating comment of the Maharal in Parshas Kisetze. As we know, one of the, um, or, or, or the, the classic, shall we say, or standard punishment for doing an Avera is what's called Malchus. Okay, a person gets lashes, and once again, it's a serious business. He did something wrong, and there are consequences. <clears throat> How many Malchus does he get? Well, we call it Malchus Arboim. And there's a reason why we call it Malchus Arboim. Malchus Arboim means 40, because the Torah says 40. And the Torah says, Arboim Yakenu, in Parshas Kiseitse. Now we know <coughs> that actually he'll, he will never really get 40. The most he will get is the maximum is 39. Where does that come from? The Torah says 40, where does 39 come from? Arboim chosar achas. Well, the Mishnah explains it, and then the Gemara explains it more, and then Rashi explains it even more, and even after all of that, it's actually still difficult to understand. It's not a straightforward matter at all. But <coughs> the point is that the, the Pasuk beforehand ended with a word, bimispar. That means that, that he receives a number. And then the next Pasuk says, so when you take the word and you put it together with the number of 40 so the word you could say the word is redundant because if it's 40 then that's a number I know it's a number what does the word come to add in this case it actually comes to detract means the number that leads to 40 which is 39 and that's the halacha and that's a big chiddush and moreover, not only is it a big chiddush, it's a very, in, if one could say, it's a very interesting way for the Torah to tell you that there's actually 39. 
by saying 40, but it's the number that leads to 40. And if the Torah said 39, we'd also know it's 39, arguably much clearer. <coughs> so why does the Torah write it as if it's 40 and then give us further signals to remove one? That's really the question. It sounds like there's a difference between saying 39 and 40 minus 1, even though arithmetically they're the same, but atmospherically they're not the same. And what is the difference between them? Says Maharal in the Gur'ariyeh, the truth is, there really should be 40, 40 Malkas. What is so significant about the number 40? We know that there are 40 formative days of the, literally, of the formation of the child, what's known as the Arba'im Yom of Yetzirah's Havlad. Of course, the pregnancy is, in total is, is nine months, plus minus, but there are 40 critical days <coughs> where the the essential components of the, of the child are put together. Well, the 40th day is the day where the spiritual component comes into, comes into the person, comes into the child. The first 39 are, are assembling his physical materials, his physical makeup, and then day 40 is when his, his neshama comes in, his ruchnias comes in, without getting into all the parallel discussions, is it when he's born, is it etc. and so forth, some parts only wait till the bar mitzvah, but in, in, in a fundamental way, day 40 is the spiritual component. Days, the first 39 days are the physical component. So, so <coughs> says Maharal, the truth is that a person can't really sin unless he has both components. Because if he only has the physical component, but there's no animation there, so he can't do anything. But by the same token, if he only has his spiritual component, he can't act in the physical world. So ultimately, the sin is the product of, it's a collaborative project of both his spiritual life force and his physical existence. But which one is really at fault? If we, if one may, if we may illustrate with a, a, a marshal, sometimes uh, if there's a group of uh, children who are misbehaving, but a discerning eye will, will note that there, there are the ringleaders, there are the participants, and those that kind of get dragged along. Every once in a while, there'll be someone you say, he's a good child, he just got, he just got in bad company. And the Afghaminah will be that even for the same act, which is done by all 10 of them or wherever it is, one will get expelled, two will get suspended, three will get a, a reprimand, and one will get a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a talking to, because he, he, there's nothing wrong with him, he just fell into bad company. Says Maharal, one should really get all 40 parts of the person need to be addressed, because all 40 parts were involved. But only 39 of them are really at fault, because part number 40, which is, is Nishama, has quote-unquote fallen into bad company, known as his guf. So, so do you need that 40th in order for all 40 to be addressed? No. If you deal with the first 39, the 40th will be just fine. And that's why the Torah says 40 and then detracts from it because all 40 parts do need to be addressed, but only 39 of them need to be punished. And then the 40th is, is good to go. And once again, <coughs> we see from here that 
in, in punishing the, the, this person for having done the wrong thing, but he's also being given validation. If you would give him 40 markers, you're basically saying every single aspect of you is, is, is crooked, is criminal, and it's not true. He's given an affirmative message by saying you did the wrong thing, and again, actions have consequences, but there's part of you that doesn't need Malchus. Be sure to develop that part. Be sure to, 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 to rethink and, and, and change your direction. And once again, the, even within the, the, the experience of the punishment, there is a positive message, an affirming message that he may never have heard before. And who knows? Perhaps everyone he ever spoke to told him that he's capable of no good. So what choice does he do but to do bad? The Torah says you did the wrong thing, you'll be punished, but you're capable of better. Number 40 is not necessary. You're good to go. <clears throat> so these are some very interesting um, thoughts. And again, it all comes back to the Sefer HaChinuch, where it begins by, by protecting the victims and making sure that people are afraid of the authorities. But the ultimate goal is that everyone should behave well because they, because they wish to behave well. It's the best way to be, not only for the victim's sake, but also for the, for the would-be perpetrator's sake. Well, <clears throat> having discussed... Um, these aspects of the, of the enforcement and the uh, punishment elements of, of Mishpatim, what about the Mishpatim themselves? And it's interesting that Mishpatim start with the words Ve'elah Mishpatim, as we know, Perik Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, pardon me, Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, Ve'elah Mishpatim Asher Tassim Lifnehem. These are the Mishpatim that you shall place before them. And one doesn't need uh, to dwell on the final phrase too much to note there seems to be an inference. Place these mishpatim before them, implying, and not someone else. And what that seems to indicate is that, although there's many ways that this implication can go, but it seems to indicate (coughs) that the mishpatim are for the Jewish people and for the Jewish people alone. And interestingly, this seems to be borne out by the Pasuk and Tehillim, which we say in the morning. Magid Devar of Yaakov, Chukav Mishpat of Yisrael. Hashem gives, tells his word to Yaakov, his Chukim and Mishpatim, Lo Asachei but not to any other nation, U Mishpatim Bayidaum. And they don't know Mishpatim. Because Mishpatim is for, is for B'nai Yisrael. And interestingly, there is a tshuva of the Ramah on this very matter. And the, the question was asked, because we know that one of the Sheva Mrs. B'nai Noach is Dinim. And Dinim, there needs to be some type of legal system and judicial system. That's called Dinim. It's one of the seven. So the question is, is raised, well, given the fact that they, they need to have a system that deals with it, do they need to deal with it in the way that the Torah says to deal with it, like as per Parshas Mishpatim? I mean, they're already in the mitzvah of Mishpatim, so maybe they need to abide by the Mishpatim. But, but, but uh, well, it is something of a machlukas, but, there, but the, the Ramah seems to conclude that no. Whatever they consider to be just and fair and effective, is acceptable f- for dinim, okay? Obviously, define just, fair, and effective, okay? It can't be excessive, it can't be uh, a circus or, or a parody of, uh, of law, <coughs> which uh, is, often happens to be the case, whether it be yodim or velo yodim, 
but assuming that, that it works, there is no insistence whatsoever that even as they deal with cases that the Torah discusses in Parshish Mishpatim, that they do so as per the parameters of Parshish Mishpatim. And the question is why? If we can ask in uh, an oversimple way, we assume that Mishpatim are the best way to deal with things. That's the way the Torah says to deal with it. Why is there no such insistence? Well, this may lead us to another interesting question about the beginning of Mishpatim. The Mishpat that opens the Parsha is Eved Ivri. And the very simple question is, why? And although we might be inclined to perhaps deflect the question, or maybe even disqualify the question, by saying that something has to start, and which, whichever would be the first mishpat, you would then ask, you know, why is this the beginning? In which, in which case, the, the question, it's a moot question. But it's not true. The question is a valid question. And the reason why is because Eved Ivri, <coughs> it actually begins in the middle of a story, as if to say, why is this person in Eved Ivri? Because he stole. And... What, so what should happen to you if you stole? You have to pay. And perhaps even pay back double or more, as we discussed. But Now, if you can't pay back double or you can't pay back what you owe, so then you may need to be sold into servitude, into service in order to pay off your debt. In other words, the whole concept, the inception of, this, of a situation of an Eved Ivri is already presupposing that he's violated one of the Mishpatim and already is ineligible for one of the other mishpatim, both of which will be mentioned later on in the parsha, In the middle, or, or not the middle, but, to, but certainly much later on, significantly later on in Parsha's mishpatim, it will say, if a person steals, he has to pay back double. If he can't pay back double, he needs to be sold. I mean, that is the didactic presentation of this mishpat. And then you can talk about how to deal with an Eved Ivri, but it already presupposes two or three levels which aren't mentioned till later in the Parsha. And that's why it is a legitimate question. Why did you take the tail end of a, of a Mishpatim story and use it to, to open the Parsha of Mishpatim? <coughs> and I think the answer, or certainly one of the answers, is as follows. <coughs> what do we know about the Everett Ivri? <coughs> he, all things being equal... He works for no more than six years. Right? And that's, that's how the Pasha begins. Sheish shonim yavod, works for six years. Uvashvi yetzelech avshichin. Why? Why no more than six years? Well, it, it, it doesn't take long before we come to associate this pattern with other existing patterns in the Torah, where basically something works for six and stops at the seventh. <coughs> Examples are Shemitah, six years, stopping at the seventh, and it's all patterned after Shabbos. We work for six days, and you rest on the seventh. And what is the goal behind that? Because 
One engages in the world for six days, but on the seventh day, Yismechu b'malchuscha, it's a day of malchus for, for, for Hashem, one recognizes that ultimately Hashem is in charge of the world. And that is true in our relationship with the world on a weekly basis for Shabbos. It's true in our relationship with Eretz Yisrael on the seven-year cycle of Shemitah. And it's true for our relationship with our fellow Jew. Because you're also, quote-unquote, in charge of him. He's working for you. He's your servant. He is. And the Torah says, but for no more than six years. Because nothing like that, no arrangement like that can go for, long, for longer than six years. All things be equal, unless he elects, in which case you've got this, the, the other situation, <coughs> until Yovel. <coughs> but, but what are we seeing here? We're seeing that, if one may put it in this way, there's a Shabbos sticker element within the, mitzv- within the Mishpat of Eved Ivri. Its basic term is dictated by the same concerns and parameters as Shabbos. That's very interesting. And moreover, should we then ask the question, what if a non-Jew steals? And then, and then the Sheva Mrs. B'nai Noach say, well, he needs to be dealt with. How should it be dealt with? Should it be like Eved Ivri, like Mishpatim? Certainly not. When you consider that Umos Olam, the nations of the world, they don't have to keep Shabbos even when it's Shabbos. They certainly don't need to abide by Shabbos elements within Mishpatim. And moreover, <coughs> later on, there will be halachas about how to deal with Eved Ivri, how to treat him and all of that. And, and, the, and the, the Pasuk explains the reason why you're given these guidelines and how to treat your Everett Ivri is because you need to remember that you were also Avodim in Mitzrayim. Remember that? Which is true for the Jewish people. So, so three minutes ago it was Shabbos during Everett Ivri and now it's Pesach. Zeichel Etzias Mitzrayim. That is rolled into the, to the halachas of Everett Ivri. Once again, consider Nations of the world, they don't, they don't need to remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim even on Seder night. Certainly not in the way they deal with the Eved Ivri or any of their Avodim. <coughs> in other words, what this Mishpat demonstrates very clearly <coughs> is that the different areas of Torah, and this is why it's such a profound statement and it's based on the, the comments of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, is that we, we may have been inclined to think that of all of the areas of Torah, Mishpatim is, is the one which is most, quote-unquote, natural. It's just civil law. And, and every society needs it. And there isn't necessarily much that it has in common with what we would call religious law. In other words, your religious law is Chometz on Pesach and Malachas on Shabbos and, and, and that type of thing. But in the world of Mishpatim, it's just the, the civil domain. It's the judicial domain. But never the twain shall meet. And to that end, our introduction to Mishpatim is to show just how intertwined the different aspects of Torah are, the different realms and areas of, of Torah are. So it doesn't get more mishpat than Eved Ivri, but it's got Shabbos and Pesach wired into it. And that's how the mishpatim of the Torah work. 
<coughs> and that's if, and that and that perhaps is why Eved Ivri leads because it's so uh, starkly demonstrated within Eved Ivri just how much it is part and parcel of the general program. It has the DNA of Torah uh, I- I- embedded in it. And interestingly, uh, which is then firstly the answer to the question as to um, why Eved Ivri opened Mishpatim, to demonstrate what Mish- how Mishpatim are an, in- an integral and inherent part of, of, of all mitzvahs of the Torah, but also explains why the nations of the world don't have it. Because they, don't, they, they only have Mishpatim, but they don't have the, the, the other aspects of Torah. So they don't have Mishpatim, which have other aspects of Torah wired into them. And interestingly, if we go back to the Pasuk in Tehillim, which says, Magid Devar Yaakov, Chukov Umishpatov Yisrael. Chukim and Mishpatim are, are practically opposites in this regard. Because chukim are mitzvahs whose reason we don't understand, and mishpatim are mitzvahs whose reason is eminently understandable. And the Pasuk puts them together, and it puts them together <coughs> because that's the point. They go together, and even mitzvahs that are one have aspects of the other. And because that's true, because the mishpatim are chukim and mishpatim, so lo asachin lechogoy. So he didn't do so for other nations. Mishpatim, but by yidom, because the mishpatim of the Torah are, are, are so intimately bound up with chukim and then, and then by extension all other areas of, uh, of Torah. So that's again a very major um, idea with regards to as we, as we embark on the area of Torah which is, called, which is called Mishpatim. And indeed the matter goes further. <coughs> There's a very interesting uh, Isser which makes its first appearance in our Parsha the first of two, and that's the Isser of Shochad, and that's in Perik Kaf Gimel Pasuk Ches. Perik Kaf Gimel Pasuk Ches. So what does it say? V'Shochad Lotikach. <coughs> Not to, there's a, a prohibition to take a bribe. Ki Ashochad Ya'aver Pikrim V'Yisalev Tuvirei Tzadikim. Shochad, it will, it will blind even people that have good vision. It will skew their vision or blind them. Uh, and it will completely overturn uh, even, even straightforward things. Um, so this, this Isser of Shochad is reiterated in Parshas Shoftim itself, Lotikach Shochad, almost identical. There it says, Shochad yi'aver ene chachamim. It will blind the eyes of the wise. Here it says it will blind the eyes of those who can see. The Vilna Gaon famously says <coughs> that a Dayan needs to be both. He needs to be a Chacham, he needs to be a Piker. It means he needs to know what the Allah is, but he also needs to understand the people that are standing in front of him and giving him either their testimony or, the, or whatever input they're giving. Um, he, he needs his eyes open in that aspect as well. But be that as it may. So this now is the Isra of Shochad. And, and it, significantly, as Rashi points out, when the Torah forbids <coughs> the, the judge to, to take a bribe, it's not with the intention of perverting justice. Because that's already usur when the Torah says, don't pervert justice. You're not allowed to pervert justice for free. Even if you don't take a bribe. 
So the fact that you're taking a bribe, it's, it's in any case covered by the same prohibition. So the point is, even if a person takes something and, 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 the, and the side that gives him this gift says, I, I, you know, I, I, this, is, this is my goodwill gesture for you, and I hope, you know, whatever the outcome is, it will be, it will be just and fair. It's already has, has a blinding effect. And, and by the way, so it should. By, by which we mean, how does bribery work? If you receive something from someone, you're, you're partial to them. You should be partial to them. They gave you something. You just can't be the judge. In other words, the moral of the story is not, it's not a moral failing in you if you're partial to someone who gave you something. That's actually a, a moral uh, plus. You should be partial to them. You, you appreciate they did something for you. You're just no longer impartial and you can't be the judge. So this is Shochad. <coughs> What's interesting is, says Meshachachma, if you go back to the Pasuk beforehand, which is its own uh, domain, and then we'll see how the two connect. So the Pasuk Zion reads, uh, firstly, Midvasheker Tirchak, that's, uh, that, right, one should distance oneself. The Torah, interestingly, never phrases Sheker in the Negative, right? Lo to shaker. It does for a bezdim, but uh, in a bezdim, but midva shaker Distance yourself from falsehood. Vinaki v'tzadik al taharog, and don't kill. So we're dealing with the capital cases, and let's take each phrase and be uh, uh, clear on what it's saying. Vinaki v'tzadik al taharog. Don't kill someone who's called naki, and don't kill someone who's called tzadik. Okay, we'll need to go back and define those terms. What is Naki and what is Tzadi? But the Pasuk concludes, Kilo Atzdik Rasha. I will not um, exonerate a Rasha. Somehow that's an explanation of the prohibition of, of not killing a, a Naki and a Tzadi. So first things first. I'll reach and reach What are these two terms? Naki is a person who, literally clean, practically innocent. If a person is innocent, okay. Don't kill him. But then what's a tzaddik? Someone who's righteous. What, righteous and guilty? So, so why do we need two terms for the type of people that you shouldn't kill? Not kill? If he's innocent, don't kill him. And then also don't kill a tzaddik. What does that mean? And Rashi comments from Chazal <clears throat> that tzaddik here means that he has been vindicated in his death, or exonerated more correctly. Meaning he's been found to be innocent, and therefore released from the trial. And what if you then discover new evidence comes to light or new argumentation comes to light? More correctly, new, new, right? the, the, the case is reviewed and he really was guilty. So you mistakenly released him. Should you call him back to convict him? Says the Torah, no. In the same way or, or similar to Noki, if he's innocent, don't kill him. Also, if he's a tzaddik, if he, was, if he was found to be innocent, even mistakenly, and released, don't call him back. Tzaddik al-Tarok. Here, tzaddik is used in the pure judicial sense of someone who was found, who was found to be uh, innocent. In this case, wrongly. But why should you not call him back? The Torah, the Pasuk concludes, Kilo atzdik rasha. I will not exonerate a rasha. But how, is that, how does that explain anything? That's what you're telling us to do. 
You're telling us to exonerate a Russia. We know he's a Russia now. We thought he was a Tzaddik, and therefore we let him go. But now we realize that he really is guilty. So we're not allowed to bring him back. And, and Hashem explains, because I will not exonerate a Russia. What is, how does that explain this din, this, this salah? So Rashi explains that what Hashem is saying is, I'm telling you not to take him back, but you don't need to worry about him. I'll take care of him. Lo atzdik rasha. I will, not, I, I will not allow him to, to, to roam around uh, <coughs> you know, unpunished. If he really is a Russia, I'll take care of it. You, you tried, you made a mistake, leave it. I'll take care of it. Lo atzdik rasha. You don't have to worry that a guilty person will go free indefinitely. In Rashi's, as Rashi quotes the famous phrase from Chazal, Habesh luchim lamakom. Hashem has many emissaries to deal with people that need to be dealt with. So that's Rashi's explanation of lo atzdik rasha. Okay, so once again, in summary, it's saying, you thought he was innocent, you let him go, You've, you discover he's guilty, don't bring him back. What to make of all this thing? I'll deal with him. Lo atzdik rasha. But there are other Mepharshim who explain differently. Lo atzdik rasha, I will not exonerate a Russia is an explanation as to how it is that you came to make a mistake. And this is an amazing explanation because we have a principle. Elokim nitzav ba'adas kel. Hashem stands within the Bezdin. That means that the Shekhinah, to a certain degree, is present in every Din Torah. So? So sometimes, the Bezdin make a decision. They do their best, they use their best judgment, and still they make a mistake. It can be. In certain situations, says the Pasuk, you need to know that that mistake is divinely ordained. There is a higher force in play that was withholding information for you or steering you towards a certain... Why? Because look now at what the Pasuk is saying. If he's innocent, of course, don't kill him. But even if you mistakenly exonerated him, don't bring him back. Why? Because it was no mistake. It was, it was divinely guided. Because I'm there in the Bezdin. Lo atzdik rasha, I would not have let you release him if he really was a Russia and I wanted him to be killed. Which means if you nonetheless, quote unquote, mistakenly released him, there are higher concerns here. There are other reasons why I, I do not wish him to be punished by you. So, so what, what's being expressed in this postdoc, if, if we're sensitive to the nuance, it, that this explanation is different than, than Rashi. Loatzdik Rasha means I would not have let you do that if it wasn't for just reason. So leave it, because take that as an indication, there are higher forces at play. Hashem is also in the Bezdin, and sometimes he steers the din of the Bezdin. If they use their best judgment and they still made a mistake, some, some, a, a higher force is in play, which is absolutely incredible. And how does this now lead into Pasuk Ches? Says Meshachachma, what did Pasuk Zion just tell us? If you made a mistake, sometimes it's not a mistake. Because, because Hashem is there and, and, and he wants the person to go. But then Pasuk Ches says, but don't take a bribe. What's the connection between, between Pasuk Zion and Pasuk Ches? 
The connection says Meshachachma is because what if you took a bribe and as a result of that bribe, you mistakenly exonerated him? You know what the Allah is? Call him back. Why? Because Hashem isn't part of that Bezdin. If you, from the outset, conducted yourself in this din in a way that you are knowingly blinding yourself to the correct result, Hashem is not there. Hashem distances himself from that Bezdin. And you know what that means? If you made a mistake, it's just a mistake. And you need to correct it. And if you mistakenly released him, call him back. So it's, 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 it's a, an amazing halachic, in a sense, ramification of the progression of these two psukim. The first one says, Hashem is generally in the Bezdin. Sometimes mistakes are not a mistake. But you can do something to drive Hashem away from the Bezdin, like taking a bribe, and then, you, and then if you made a mistake, it really is a mistake. And, and the, the halacha in the previous pasuk does not pertain. And you need to call them back because it's your mistake. You need to correct it. Uh, fascinating uh, comments from the uh, analysis, really, of the Meshachach. But not only of each pasuk for what it is, but of the, for the connection between the, the psukim. Well... Having uh, involved ourselves in the world of mishpatim, let's take a look to a quote-unquote non-mishpat-related matter in mishpatim, and that is in Perik Kaf Gimel Pasuk Kaf. There's much to say about this this section, but we will content ourselves, or suffice ourselves, with... um, with the comments that we'll make. But Hashem says, and this is already in Parshas <coughs> Mishpatim, Behold, I'm sending a Malach before you, he's going to protect you. So this is, this is a Chiddush. And again, the, 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 the topic that we're not going to get into, which is a major discussion, we'll need to, Mitz Hashem, talk about it at a different time, is that here, everything is going right, and Hashem says, I'm sending a malach to, to take care of you. Later on in Parshas Kisisa, as a result of the Chet Egal, Hashem said he's sending a malach, and it was an absolute disaster. And, and, and Moshe prayed against it and railed against it and did everything he could in order to, 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 to undo that terrible degree. What was so wrong about that malach post Egel, and why was what was so right about this malach pre Egel? That's that's really. I mean, are malachim good good for the Jews or not? That's really the question. Either way, back to our pasuk. <coughs> so Hashem says, uh, "I'm sending a malach to to protect you." This seems to be like a like a, a major development, and then Itziv asks a simple question, a disarmingly simple. And if you know your Tehillim, you, you may be either disappointed or, or, or gladdened to find out that every single individual Jew has, has not one malach, but two malachim to protect them. Ki malachav So this puts us in a very interesting situation. The entire Jewish people are being given one malach, and it's considered to be a, a, a major attainment Whereas each individual Jew has two malachim. So what's the big yichus if there's one malach? It's interesting, China. What's also interesting is, if you look at, at the Gemara, you'll see 
in various places, it ascribes all sorts of different functions to these two angels that accompany a person wherever he goes. Um, you have the Gemara says in Tainus that these... The, the, what these two angels do is that they, they observe the person and then later on they'll, they'll testify about him, which is basically a full-time job. Uh, the Gemara and Shabbos famously says that they accompany home from Shul and then they, and they uh, if the house is, is, is in order, they, they, they give him a bracha, all sorts of things. Which is interesting because the Pasuk couldn't be more explicit that, that the Malachim are there to protect him. So why is the Gemara ascribing or even seeking to, to, to discover other things that they do? Maybe they don't do anything else. Maybe they just do what the Pasuk says, which is just to protect the person, but not to observe and not to testify, not to bless him and not to... and so on. The, and the Nitziv says as follows. This is the Nitziv actually not in the Hamak Dover, which of course is his parish on the Chumash, but in the Sefer Hamak She'ela which is his parish on the Sheiltas of Rav Achai. That was his first, it's his magnum opus, really, uh, and his first <coughs> uh, work that he published. And then Nitziv says, pay attention, you'll see. You'll see why the Gemara says what it did. Our Pasuk says, anochi lefanecha. I am sending a malach. Which means when Hashem assigns a malach to a person for a certain task, the verb used is sholeach. Similarly, the very first malach ever described in the Torah is in Parshas Chayesara. When, Ash, when Avram tells Eliezer, don't worry, Hashem, uh, who took me out of uh, Orkastim, etc., who yishlach malacho lefanecha v'tzliach tarkecha, he will send a malach before you. When a malach is assigned for a certain job, the verb used is shlichus, yishlach, which, by the way, makes perfect sense. Because it is a shlichus. It's a mission. That's his mission. The word malach itself, <coughs> I heard from Rav Kuperman a number of times, is, is, is really derived from the word malacha. It's, it's, to, it's to get a job done. And therefore, that's, a person is sent to get the job done. But that's very interesting. Because now, go back to the Pasuk in Tehillim, which says, Ki malachav yitzavelach lishmorcha. Not that Hashem will send malachim, to, to, to guide you, to protect you. But he will command Malachim to protect you. But what is the difference in connotation between Yishlach Malach and Yitzave Malach? That's an interesting shayna. And the answer, says the Nitziv, is if the entire purpose or the primary or fundamental purpose is this job, so then that's what he's sent for. So then the term Yishlach is used. But when would you use the term Yitzaveh, command, if he's already there, but he's there for something else? So he wasn't sent for this, but he'll be told to do it. Right? And that Lahavdil, but he actually, the Nitzib gives a mushal, and it, it really, it, even in our own parlance, you say, I'll send someone to, 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 to fix that. Meaning, what are they doing by you? They've been sent specifically for, to, to fix this. But if you say, tell so-and-so to fix it, it sounds like he's already there. He just needs to be told to fix it. He's not sent for that. He's, sent, he's there for another reason. And therefore, says the Nitziv, this is the difference between the one Malach. He was just one for the entire people. But he was sent to protect them. 
But now you understand why the Gemara assigned all sorts of and ascribed all sorts of other tasks to these malachim. They observe and they bless. And, and, and not what the Pasuk says. The Pasuk says, yeah, but it says, Ki It must be that they're there for other reasons. But in certain times, they will be told to protect you. But that's not what they're doing with you. They must be there for other reasons. And the Gemara investigates what those other reasons are. It turns out, therefore, that the difference between the Jewish people's malach in our parsha and the individual's malach is the, the Jewish people's malach in our parsha was sent expressly to, to protect them. And because that's his whole job, it's a different level of protection. Because that's the entire reason he is sent for them, so it is, it is his full-time job, so to speak, it results in a higher level of protection, which indeed we know is true. The Jewish people enjoyed supernatural uh, protection for the time that they were in the Midbar. Angelic protection in the full sense of the word. Because that's what he's, he's there for. But when it's only one malach, but it's that higher level because it's a sholeach malach. The Jewish people, by contrast, each and every Jew, he has malachim, but they're not there for that. They will fulfill that function, but only on a contingency basis, yetzavalach. And that's why the nature of the salvation will not be supernatural. It will be just in order to, to get them through life's hurdles. And that, says the Nativ, is why the next pasuk says, al kapayim yisauncha. You're about, to, you're about to stub your toe. You're about to, to hurt your foot. He'll lift you over. The word Yisauncha is very interesting. Because <coughs> there's an extra nun there. It should really be Yisauncha. I mean, that's the word. He'll carry you. Yisauncha. So what's Yisauncha? What is the connotation of the extra nun? As we know, says the Netziv, in many different uh, contexts, the, the, the addition of the letter nun, it has a softening effect. It has a diminishing effect. And that's where when, it, when something ends, for example, with, with, the, with the nun, if it's added on, it means that it's smaller. Yishmerun, yelchun, is less than yishmeru and yelechu. Interestingly, <coughs> and this the Radak says, there is a word for the pupil of the eye in Hebrew. It's called Ishon. Shamreini ki Ishon bas ayin. The pupil of the eye is called Ishon. And the Radak says the reason why it's called Ishon is because if you look at it, you will see the reflection of a small person. Because that's what happens when you look in the pupil of someone's eye. It has a small, a small person there. Ish is a person. Ishon is a small person. And where it's, where it's kept, so to speak, or reflected is in the pupil of the eye. That's why the pupil of the eye is called Ishon. Ishon bas ayin. So Yisauncha, with the added Nun, again, because these Malachim, they're not there to protect you. They're there for other things. So if they're called upon to protect you, it will be much more low-key. Yisauncha. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a lower profile protection. And for that reason, says the Nitziv, it says, Al-Kapayim Yisauncha. They're carrying you in your hands. When do you ever carry a person in your hands? Never. Because if you're carrying them in any, for any significant distance, you will carry them, assuming you, assuming you can carry them, you'll carry them either on your back or in your arms. 
picture a person carrying a small child. They don't carry them in their hands. They carry them in their arms. But when do you carry someone in your hands? When it's just a momentary thing to get them, to get them over something. You don't go through the whole bring them to, 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 to your arms. So the whole, the whole uh, concept of al-kapayim, to carry with your hands, is because it's yisa'uncha. It's just to get you over that thing that's in your way. But then you'll be put down again, and you've got to keep on going. And this then is the difference between the, the situation of shalech malach in our parsha and malachav yitzavalach. And of course, <coughs> how uh, worthwhile it is always to investigate these things, not only because they give us deeper insight into the Chumash, but also deeper insight into, into Psukim, that we say regularly. I mean, how often do we say the uh, to notice the difference between Sholeach Malach and Mitzav Malach, Yisoucha and Yisouncha, carrying on the arms, carrying on the hands. This, this is the, uh, uh, the, the greats, the Nitziv, has, has an eye on all of this, and his uh, avails of his, of his uh, insight. So we'll leave it over there for this evening. session will pick up again next week. I wish you all a, a good night, a good week ahead. Shabbos Tovos, Leklal Veleprat.